she, covering nonprofit CEO. I am the bossy older sister, so ran for fifth grade president, editor in chief of the campus paper to motivate people through passion and not necessarily through monetary means. Management and leadership through trial and error. Hire slowly, fire quickly. I learned the power of not trying to do everything by myself. Started working at the national headquarters. The thing about nonprofits is if you stick around long enough, you end up being promoted. An organization that identifies high achieving, low income middle school kids take on jobs that haven't been done before and for which there's no instruction manual. So it was 2005 and I left to become the executive director of our New York affiliate. I set up my email account, handed me the keys, and they're like, okay, bye, good luck. I had a staff of, including myself, two and a half people. It's a very high-touch program model. Basically, everything that a middle-class parent would provide, SAT prep, extra tutoring, high school placement, level the playing field for kids who have the talent but not necessarily the resources. From a scale perspective, we are not really able to serve a ton of kids. A bunch of seasonal interns who were our teaching staff. The early years were probably the toughest, but they're also the ones that I remember why the were they fondest. tough? Really long days and really long nights and working weekends, but I really loved it. Felt like we were building something together. It felt like being in the trenches together. The rest of the money we had to raise either through individuals, foundations. It was a lick and a prayer, and we had to make do and make ends meet. And we made the decision to become a 501c3 and grow because our services were very much in demand. Recession hits. So 2008, our board was incredibly supportive to reassure them that nobody was getting fired. We had put away some money for a rainy day, and this was a rainy day. And so um, we were lucky in that we were able to cut back where we had to, and we maintained, and we stayed lean, and we made it through. And actually, I would say the downturn made us stronger in the end because we actually understood what it meant to survive in lean times. And so when things became a little looser, and more of the resources were flowing, we had already trimmed down and become super efficient. Rhea, there's nothing harder in this world than raising a budget under a million. And I was like, I don't really know what to do with that information at that time. Many institutional donors don't want to be that big a percentage of your overall. An advocate of foundations acting more like VCs. This downturn is sort of fascinating to me, is it actually cleared the playing field for a lot of the weaker organizations that weren't sustainable. Winter came and winter came hard, we survived. 12 to 30% year to year, third site in the South Bronx. Grew both vertically and horizontally. Not what you're expecting to do with your own children. How can we expect to do that with other people's children? Success begets success. Carve out our own niche in a competitive market. There's enough room for everybody. You have to fix the plumbing before you can talk about the poetry. You can't run a three-site organization the same way that you ran a one-site organization. I think also being intentional about culture was a real hard lesson. Hope is not a strategy. Like I just kept hoping that they would get better and and you know they didn't because in my heart I'm a I'm a startup entrepreneur. Six months in advance of leaving that I tendering my resignation. A lady always knows when to leave a party. Working on my own consulting firm for nonprofits. I have a podcast, I have a blog um, and I'm actually working on writing a book. Welcome to Startup Hunter, also streaming on YouTube. We cover startups that are making it, have made it, have failed, and sometimes you bet on the jockey and not the horse. So I'm here with Rhea Wong and with our special guest. Stevie right, Wonder. Right down there, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and we're here on the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. 
and Rhea is a non-profit CEO. So recovering nonprofit CEO. She's a recovering nonprofit That's CEO. Right. And she built an amazing organization. And that's why I'm having Rhea on this show. So let's start with your history of, of leadership. Oh gosh, history of leadership. And I want to go all the way back. Were you in the Girl Scouts? Were oh you in- Oh my gosh, Hunter, you're going back in the day. Well, okay, so it probably started birth order. I am the oldest of a family of three. I am the bossy older sister, so being in charge just felt very natural to me. I'm also going to try not to get hit by a car or bike on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and then, gosh, let me think. So fifth grade, I think I ran for fifth grade president and got it. Uh, middle school, I ran for sixth, seventh, and student body president and then see high school probably ran for some clubs in college i was the editor-in-chief of the campus paper now so what school did you go to i went to mcgill university oh, where yeah. you also Ta went hunter right <laughs> the, the harvard of the north what did you do in college what did i do in college uh i you know i didn't do a lot of the college -y things I was, a, I was a pretty big nerd um Studied political science, was working on this campus paper, which was ended up being like 40 hours a week. So between going to school full time and working on the paper, I didn't have much time to get into any trouble in college. So what did you what what did you do? Were you a reporter? I was a reporter, and then I was an editor. So I started as a news reporter, then I was a news editor, then I was the assistant ed in chief, and then my last year I was ed in chief. And oh. So yeah, so I thought I would be heading down a path of journalism. Um, I worked for Mother Jones Magazine and the NBC affiliate in the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Okay, okay, we're going machine gun here. Let's let's go a little chronologically. Okay. Um, so you're the editor-in-chief, and how was that? How many people were on the staff of the McGill? What was the name of the, the McGill? McGill Tribune. I'm surprised you, did you read it? You seem I more no, of a daily guy. I, I, I was totally running the computer systems oh, at school yeah, okay. and just like you like for no pay i assume or did you get paid it was a very 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 small stipend um it was it was coffee money basically so yeah uh i totally did not even read that i'm sorry <laughs> it's okay it's okay uh so at the time gosh on the staff i, I can't even remember we might have had like 10 people between layout, photography, and all of the different sections, and then uh, and then we had so, a roster of writers. Was it difficult motivating them? Like, did you find that you had to, uh, you know, um, do uh, things, or were people generally like, did you have a hand in selecting your staff? Yeah, that's a good question. I did have a hand in selecting my staff, but actually, to be honest, I haven't thought about this in a really long time. And being on the campus paper was probably a really good, uh, really good practice for working a nonprofit because a lot of what you have is to motivate people through passion and not necessarily through monetary means. And so I was really lucky. I made some of the best friends that I ever made uh, in college on the paper. And it was a way of making a really big university feel small. Um, and how, I, how often was the paper coming out? 
It was a weekly. Okay. And so, yeah, it was an intense, it was a pretty intense process. And actually, it's funny, one of my best friends I met on the paper, and she now lives uh, two blocks away from me in Brooklyn. Cool. So, um, I think I, I learned pretty early on about management and leadership through trial and error. And it, it, it certainly wasn't like there was any training or training program for me to learn about that. So I learned about budgeting, I learned about managing, and I, I was like, what, 19 or 20 years old. So tell me about, you said trial and error, tell me about some, what are the worst mistakes that, oh my gosh. that stick out to you uh, for, from being the editor? For, well, for being the editor, I don't know that I, I could speak to that, but I think in general, it's interesting, I had a meeting just this morning with a bunch of ED friends. I think some of the lessons I've learned were, um, well, one of the biggest lessons I learned was not firing quickly enough. So the old adage of hire, hire slowly, fire quickly holds, and I think. Okay, so wait a minute. You ha you actually had the luxury in a student newspaper to fire people. I mean, I guess technically I did. I, I didn't fire anyone at the student paper, but I I suppose I did have the ability to do it if if it. If it was called for. Um, so you're talking about more in like. I'm talking about like my nonprofit and professional life. All right, but let's stay on the paper. You want to stay on the paper? Gosh, that has literally been more than 20 years. Okay, so staying on the paper. Um, you know, I think I I learned the power of not trying to do everything by myself. So it was a student-led paper. We were all full-time students and um, it was a lesson in trusting people to do what they say they were going to do and letting go a little bit of the process and trusting that competent, smart people would produce good outcomes. Um, certainly a lesson in time management. I mean, being a full-time full -time student at the same time as running a paper was a lot. Uh, okay. So, yeah. you conclude at McGill, and then what's your next move? Uh, I then went on to work briefly for Mother Jones Magazine. And in, where was that? In San Francisco, where I'm from. Okay. Hometown. Um, and I'd also taken a bunch of internships doing international things, so I did spend a summer in UNICEF in Ethiopia. Yeah. And I, so I thought I would be doing something like journalism or international relations. Uh, so I ended up at Mother Jones Magazine and sort of, this is the early 2000s, and kind of saw the writing on the wall as far as print journalism. Yeah. And uh, so ended up ended up getting a job at Breakthrough Collaborative, which what, is- What's a, that? It's the nonprofit, it's the headquarters of the nonprofit I ran here in New York. And it was actually the program I was a part of when I was uh, when I was in middle school. But what about? Didn't you go to graduate school, or is that late, later? No, no, I never went to graduate school. Oh. I mean, I did some graduate work at Columbia Business School, but I don't. I have not. Well, what's this about Harvard Kennedy uh, Kennedy School? Oh, it's a certificate program, so it was ah, like a continuing ed. Got it. Uh, so no, no, have not gone to have not gone to grad school. Um, I was busy building a nonprofit. Okay, so so here's where I am. You were in San Francisco. I was in San Francisco. I started working at the national headquarters 
um, of, I, of Breakthrough, the Breakthrough Collaborative. Okay. And I was, gosh, 20, 22 years old. And, you know, sort of the classic thing about nonprofits is if you stick around long enough, you end up being promoted because people leave. And so I, I started as a program assistant, uh, literally like emptying mouse traps and filing and crawling under desks. Okay, now what does Breakthrough do? So we are, or I shouldn't say they, are an organization that identifies high-achieving, low-income middle school kids and supports them to and through college. Um, we also... Now, was that based in San Francisco? It was based in San Francisco. It was started in San Francisco. There are 27 sites around the country and one in Hong Kong. Oh, this is much bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, we're, it's major, Hunter. Anyway, so I started there. I, I, was, one of, I was the one who started the first... A national teacher recruitment program so we hire high school and college kids around the country to teach in our programs and that was incredibly informative it was very much trial and error again <clears throat> I think the theme in my professional life is I take take on jobs that haven't been done before and for which there's no instruction manual and I figure it out okay so t where were you based for this in San Francisco the whole all 12 years uh, no, no, no. So I was there for three years. Okay, so let's talk about your first three years. Uh-huh. Um, how many people are in this organization? Uh, at the time, it was small, maybe eight people in the national organization. Okay. And I was started as an assistant, and then by the time I left, I was uh, the recruitment and alumni manager. And so then you say by the time you left, so that was where, what did you leave for? What did you leave to? So it was 2005. And I left to become the executive director of our New York affiliate, Breakthrough New York. Uh-huh. And that's the position that I was in for 12 and a half years. Oh, so you've been with Breakthrough for like 15 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been, it's been a minute. I started when I was a, but a young thing. So, yeah, so I started in 2005. I was itching to leave San Francisco because it's my hometown and I love right. it. But, you know, the... The call of the wild was there. Indeed. And I, I was either going to be New York, Hong Kong, or the Peace Corps. So I was very close to going to West Africa. Uh, and it so just, hmm. it did, that didn't happen? It didn't happen. Uh, New York put in an offer first. But also, I mean, I'll be honest, I sort of chickened out because they... Um, they were most likely going to either place me in somewhere in Western Africa, like the Cote d'Ivoire, or in Haiti, because I speak French. And to be honest, I uh, I chickened out when they asked me for my dental records, on the off chance that they would have to identify my body via my dental records. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna tr I'm gonna take my chances in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's all. There's, there's some crazy stuff here too, but maybe not that bad. Well, I mean, when you hear some stories, especially out in the, out in the bush, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm bold, but I, I, I don't know if I'm quite that bold. Okay, so you get to New York City. Get to New York City. Breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And are you, like, instantly in charge, or are you still? Um, uh, not running the office here. No, no, I was pretty much instantly in charge. So I was a 26-year-old executive director. 
Of course, no one really explained what that meant. They, you know, set up my email account, handed me the keys, and they're like, okay, bye, good luck. And did you have a staff here? I had, kind of, I had a staff of, including myself, two and a half people, literally in a broom closet. I mean, it used to be the supply closet for the gym. Uh, <laughs> now, tell me a little bit more about Breakthrough. Like, are you guys, like, really high touch, like, individually talking? You know, to 100%, students. Yeah, so it is incredibly, it's a very high touch uh, program model that we have. So we, like I said, we invest in our kids for 10 years a piece. And so what that means is in sixth grade, they apply to be part of the program. They have to be, you know, high achieving, but from circumstances where their families wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to afford extra academic and supplemental support. And we work with them and we provide basically everything that a middle-class parent would provide SAT prep, extra tutoring, high school placement, uh, support during the high school years and the college years, help with finding internships, with the idea that we really want to level the playing field for kids who have the talent but not necessarily the resources, with the ultimate goal of breaking the cycle of poverty. Most of the kids that we serve would be the first in their families to go to college. And so, um, we invest deep for 10 years. And so from a scale perspective, we are not really able to serve a ton of kids, but yearly we served about 500 kids, which is pretty good. It's, is it two and a half of you in the office and then you have other like people working with you? Yeah, so it's two and a half of us in the office and we had a bunch of seasonal interns who were our teaching staff and we had hired uh, professional teachers to coach our, our teaching fellows, which is what we called them. Um, so we had, in the early years, we probably had, eh, call it around 30 people seasonally, you know, interns and so forth. And uh, I mean, you know, in the early years were, were probably the toughest, but they're also the ones that I remember Why the were they fondest. tough? Um, that was the time we were starting up. And so we didn't have much money and we there were only two and a half of us so we had to figure everything out and i just remember really long days and really long nights and working weekends but i really loved it and i had a great team and so as we got bigger and things became more um siloed and there were more departments it was still fun it was a different kind of challenge but i think and look i think it's a little bit of uh, the nostalgia of of startup but you know, I, I remember those days really fondly because it felt like we were building something together. It felt like being in the trenches together. Okay, so you said you had a, a very little money. Tell me where does the money come from? Private donations, grants, every, yeah. so other things? Yeah, so in the early days we were lucky in that uh, we were financially supported somewhat by our host institution, the town school up on the Upper East Side as a service to the larger school community. And then the rest of the money we had to raise either through individuals, foundations, corporations, and so forth. And so in the early days, I think we were, our bu our entire budget was in like $200,000 a year, which <clears throat> which I had to raise. So is that including your salary? Yep, that was so including everyone's salary. So like, you pay yourself a living wage of 30 grand a pop, like bare poverty living wage. And because in New York City, 30 grand is like below yeah, the poverty well, yeah, line. Yeah, we were, we were paying ourselves a little bit more than 30, but not, not by much. So what does that leave over to like run things? Uh, it was a very lean operation, I will say that. I mean, I will say that the, the school was incredibly generous with a lot of in-kind support. 
Um, but yeah, it was a lot of it was it was a lick and a prayer, and we had to make do and make ends meet and beg, borrow, and steal where we could. And not that I ever stole. Um, That's just an expression. It's an expression, but uh, yeah. Well, and at, in the early days, we only had 60 kids that we were serving per year, so it wasn't the same load. But um, yeah, we were always very, very lean and careful about where we were spending our money because we were doing summer programs and after-school programs. So we had year-round programs that we had to serve. Um, Tell me, uh, where should we go next from the early years to get us to the middle years? What, what do you remember? Uh, interesting challenges? Um, well, sort of in the middle of that. Some good stories? Yeah, so 2005 is when I started and I, you know, we were just getting going. And uh, around early 2008, we made the decision to become a 501c3 and grow our organization. Now, now what predicated that decision? Why? Uh, primarily, it was because we were under the auspices of the 501c3, which is a tax revenue um, classification by the IRS, meaning a nonprofit, under the, the town school, which was a... Uh, which was a private school, and we served public school students who came from very different socioeconomic backgrounds than most of the town school families. And uh, the feeling was that we wanted to grow because our services were very much in demand. We had, you know, three applications for every spot that we could accept a student. So there was a lot of demand, and you and you couldn't and you couldn't supply. Right, and so we had to grow. So um, you you do the five hundred one c three. You go out. On your own, right? A little, a little, and and then the economic recession hits. So 2008 in the yes. fall, um, and I just remember it was the day that the the Lehman, that Lehman Brothers went out of business. Right. And I remember sitting in one of those one of those buildings right there. Yeah, over there. And I remember uh, sitting at my desk hearing the news and just thinking, what have I done? What am I getting myself into? Have I just totally screwed us so, so wait, So you're like, you're like, we're ready to go out on our own. We know it's going to be a, a big risk. Yep. Um, and then at the same time that the financial crash happens. So what is the first thing, you know, after you've, you've, you've overcome your shock, <laughs> what is the first thing that you do and where do you go next? Well, you know, we were lucky in many ways. Um, at the time, our budget wasn't huge. I think our budget was maybe, uh, maybe just a little under $500,000 a year at that point. So, you know, not, it wasn't nothing, but it certainly wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking at having to raise millions and millions. Um, and I think a couple things happened. Our board was incredibly supportive and so, you know, while they so this is the San Francisco board. No, this is our New York board. Yeah. So while they knew that you know hard times were coming, I think they, as much as possible, tried to maintain their financial commitments. And I will hand it to a lot of uh, a lot of our foundation funders. Now, they didn't really feel the pinch of having to restrict their gifts. A lot of our foundation partners were really, really supportive and fantastic. And I, you know, basically, I I just got on the phone with everybody. And I explained the situation and I uh, asked them to maintain their commitments. And then I talked to my staff and I told them straight away that, you know, 
again, we were a very lean staff. At that point, we were just three people, so it wasn't a huge staff to support. But I wanted to reassure them that nobody was getting fired. Like we were going to try to maintain as much as we could. And you know, luckily, we've had. We, in those years, we had put away some money for a rainy day, and this was a rainy day. And so um, we were lucky in that we were able to cut back where we had to, and we maintained, and we stayed lean, and we made it through. And actually, I would say the downturn made us stronger in the end because we actually understood what it meant to survive in lean times. And so when things became a little looser and more of the resources were flowing, we had already trimmed down and become super efficient. Okay, so um, put away money for a rainy day, yet you're doing a lot of fundraising, right? Yep. So tell me about that. Like, are you out uh, in New York City every night going to parties? Like, what was your hustle My there? My hustle. Obviously, fundraising is a social kind of a job. So yeah, there is some, there is some going out to events. but. Uh, more than anything, it's about cultivating relationships. And you know, to be honest, I, I don't love going out to events in the evening. Um, but I think what it is for but me. But you did it. But I did it. You know, there was a lot of stuff. I had to do it. Someone had to do it, so I did it. But um, I would say that the cornerstone, the key to my success with fundraising was, was about relationships. It was about finding the people who wanted to partner with you, keeping our board apprised, keeping them close, keeping them committed to the cause, um, finding people who believed in what we did, talking about the impact that we made in the world, and honestly, just um, doing what we said we were going to do and being authentic and trustworthy and likable and all of the things that's important for fundraising. Okay, so 2008, um, you know, how did you really, how do you feel that you got out of that to move to the next step and what was the next step yeah. in, the, in the growth? So I would say that the next step of the growth was, so I remember back in the early days when I was just a baby ED, I went to speak to a Bridge Berlin who runs this great organization that used to be called Harlem RBI but is now called Dream. And at that point, I think he was raising like eight million a year. And he's like this uh, very, you know, larger than life character. And he, he looks at me, I'm this little baby, and he's like, Rach, I don't know what to do. And he goes, Rhea, there's nothing harder in this world than raising a budget under a million. And I was like, I don't really know what to do with that information. At that time, I was raising a like $300,000 budget. A year. A year. And uh, From but, about how many different people? Uh, are these high, are these like a hundred grand a chunk? Are these like... No, I mean it was all over the map. I mean we had we had a you know foundation funders that were anywhere from 10 to 25 and then lots of individuals who were giving in like anywhere from I mean we our smallest gift was probably like $20 up to maybe 10,000. So it was a lot of smaller gifts. Yeah. Oh, the interesting thing is Rich Roland was right and I will say this on the record which is once we hit a million, we were in a little bit of a different ballpark because it was about as much work, the difference was we could ask for bigger gifts. Now, now why is that? Like, is it... Is why it, can is we it, ask for bigger gifts? Yeah, is it just that... Like, well, so, so in a philosophical way, many institutional donors don't want to be that big a percentage of your overall because they feel like it creates an over-reliance and if they don't fund anymore, the organization is at risk, which is true. And so... When you're a $300,000 organization, 
to ask for a $10,000 gift um, is a reasonable percentage of your budget, whereas asking for when you're a $2 million organization, you can ask for a $50,000 gift and still maintain that percentage point. Yeah, so a lot of funders, particularly institutional funders, so foundations and corporations as examples, uh, are very wary, and rightfully so, of being too big a percentage of your budget. So presumably, let's just say, for example, if you are a $300,000 a year organization and you ask for a $100,000 gift, it's going to be very hard to come by because foundation probably won't want to be 30% of your overall. Because? What's their concern? Well, their concern is if they stop funding, the organization is no longer is no longer viable. Uh, let me just be devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. uh, you're doing something good. You're doing something that they, that they feel uh, is interesting and, and worthwhile. Right. Uh, why not just give you the money and just see what happens? Like, Well, a couple... A couple <laughs> this is an interesting question. A couple of different reasons. I think... Foundations in general tend to be very conservative. Yeah. They also realize that by being too being overrepresented in their in any one organization's portfolio, that it creates over reliance and therefore uh, makes an organization vulnerable, which is true. However, that being said, I've always been an advocate of foundations acting more like VCs and taking bets on jockeys uh, I'm, I'm, and, and big ideas. Which, okay, so. so so you, your your budget started around two hundred thousand when you first came to New York, how, uh -huh. and then the, the the recession hits. How long did it take to grow it? And well, interesting. I mean, it was very interesting. Uh, I actually think we grew that next year. It was it was a relative. I mean, it was relatively small growth, but we still grew. And I think in part, and this is sort of interesting, and which is why this downturn is sort of fascinating to me, is it actually cleared the playing field for a lot of the weaker organizations that weren't sustainable. So in some ways, it lessened the competition for money. And at the same time, of course, organization or foundation still had to give give away 5% of their uh, of their endowment interest. So um, I literally cannot wait for the next economic recession for a variety of reasons. One, all of the young whippersnappers who um, have never seen adversity, you know, will get cleared out. I yeah. can't wait for that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's like a winter is coming, right? And, yes. and the strong will survive. And so, you know, we were lucky enough that we had a strong enough foundation and money put away and a strong enough case for support that when winter came and winter came hard, we survived. Now, that being said, we were also a very small fish in a very large pond, right? Like if we'd been the big tuna, we might have gotten taken out. But as it was, um, it, it cleared the playing field. So I, I think as we think about the economic downturn, it, I think some very interesting things will happen. Uh, but before we get into projection and speculating, um, so y your growth, like, was it 200,000 one year, a million the next year? Like, what was no, the- No, it was the... like, I can't even remember so long ago. It was like two, I mean, it, it was sort of anywhere from 12 to 30 percent year to year. Yeah, and were you adding like a new employee a year? I was adding new employee. Uh, I don't know if it was a new employee per year, but it was sort of, you know, it sort of went by fits and starts. It was like a step function, I feel like. It was, you know, we'd see like pretty big growth and then we'd like stable out for a while. 
So what we did do in 2000 and, gosh, let me think, what year was it? 2012? Is that what year it was? Yeah. 2012, we added an additional site in Brooklyn. And which then, is where we are. Which is where we are, beautiful. We opened the site in Fort Greene. And then in 2014, I believe, we opened our second site, or third site in the South Bronx. So with growth, it was it was adding additional sites. So we grew both vertically and horizontally. So at the same time that we were growing the number of kids that we were serving, we were also deepening our commitment. So initially, we were a two-year program. Then we were a three-year program. Then we were a six-year program. And by the time I left, we were a 10-year program. Now, was program. that your choice or was that uh, like a group uh, choice? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, I, it was driven by me. But ultimately, it was the board's decision because... I made a very strong case that if we're really going to get to our outcomes about making sure that kids are graduating from college, then we need to be there to support that. Um, and I think the defining moment really came during a board meeting when I asked the board, well, how many of you are planning on dropping your kids off at college and saying, all right, see you in four years? Nobody raised their hand, and, and the question was, well, if that's, if that's the, not what you're expecting to do with your own children, how can we expect to do that with other people's children? And I think that was the moment that we all really stood shoulder to shoulder and decided that our kids deserved support all the way through until they got out of college. Cool. Um, now, there were some dissenting opinions, of course. These are big giants. These are like not made for humans. I these know. These are made for basketball players. These steps. So, but you know, I think, I think the other thing that's interesting is success begets success. So the more we were able to show that we were successful in our model, the more our reputation grew, the more our brand grew, the more people knew us, the more likely they were to, to fund but, us and give now, donations. Now, were there competitive? You you were talking about the the fish, getting cleared and not being the big tuna. Um, but were there competitive organizations doing yeah, the same thing? Absolutely. So, to, I think, and, and vying for the same resources, you know, yeah. um, as you. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, there's one that's particularly well known called um, a better a prep for prep. Of course, I know there were kids in my high school who were, who were in prep. Yeah, for prep. I mean, and they're very well regarded. And I think the challenge for us was to carve out our own niche in a competitive market and to help educate people about the ways in which we were different. But look, the truth of the matter is, uh, there's enough room for everybody. And so I think it's weird for me when people talk about competition in a nonprofit sense, because at the end of the day, like there's a lot of need and there are a lot of kids and there's a lot of wealth in this country. And so, um, yes, I think there's a, an extent to which we are vying for the same resources. And I think, that if we're doing our jobs and articulating our outcomes and connecting to the right community, then there's enough there's enough room for all of us. Okay, so you, you've expanded to three locations, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan. Uh-huh, so Brooklyn was what, 2012? The South Bronx was like 20, 2015, I wanna say? It's, okay. all, it's all blurring together now in my mind. So South Bronx, 2015, you are at a scale that you've never been before. Right. And tell me some of the challenges. Oh, challenges about, of scale. About scaling up. 
like that. Yeah, so, so many lessons learned. I think one of the key ones is you have to fix the plumbing before you can talk about the poetry. And so what that means is it, it like, I think one of the mistakes I learned uh, was that you, you, you I, it sounds so obvious, but like you can't run a three-site organization the same way that you ran a one-site organization. And what that means is like, we really, in retrospect, probably needed to do a lot more building of infrastructure before we grew. And well, the, the analogy that's really most sticking out to me is this, um, this dumpling uh, chain that I wanted to invest in. Uh-huh. And instead I bought a house. Okay. But um, they had three locations. Now they have a fourth location. Uh-huh. And in that fourth location they have a central kitchen, you know, where they can go and, you know, do things in a more factory model. Like right. the central kitchen does all the appetizers. Yep. You know, so you were talking about infrastructure. So tell me what that's like in, in, in your case. Yeah, so what that means for me, what that meant was thinking about investing in things that scaled across different sites. So that, that means HR procedures and policies. That meant uh, tech infrastructure to track outcomes. It meant a much more robust way of fundraising so that we could uh, like we knew what was happening at each site but you know what's interesting and i think this is a hard lesson learned too was because we're because we're dealing with human beings it's really difficult to scale relationships and so because our relation uh, because our model was so relationship dependent um i think inevitably when you grow you you see some staff turnover and i think in our case, we definitely saw that staff turnover um, result in some some program quality issues. Not because the people that we had were not doing a good job. It was more that so much of the value of our of our services were in the relationships that the kids and families cultivated with individual staff members. And I think, you know, I I kind of was in a little bit of a factory mindset of like, oh, well, if like there are these people who are producing the same kind of services, it'll be, it'll be the same, but it, you know, it's, it's not the same because we're human beings and we attach to other human beings. Okay. So you have three sites. So do you have like one person to run each site? We have one person running each site and then we have one person at the central office sort of overseeing each of the individuals running all of the sites. And then we have services that are sort of cross sites so things like high school placement or SAT preparation or, or what have you. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think if there was any sort of lesson learned, I mean, lots of lessons learned is about investing and in making sure the plumbing is right. I think also being intentional about culture was a real hard lesson learned because I did not appreciate fully the extent to which I was depending on proximity to carry culture. So in the early days when it was like three or five of us working in an office, people knew me, right? And so I, I just, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I had to articulate, you know, my point of view or my values or what I thought the organization were, was about because these are people who knew me and worked alongside me. But as we got bigger- Let's take a seat for a second, eh? Yeah, I think that'd be great. It would have been helpful to articulate culture in a really explicit way. As I recall, 
you had a crisis. Did I have a crisis? When did I have a crisis? Didn't you say like a lot of your staff quit on you? Oh, that crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Gosh. when did that happen? That probably happened around 2000, what year are we? Maybe 2016, 2015, 2016 was kind of when we hit a critical mass. Now, what, 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 break that down for me. Yeah, so a couple different things there. I think on the one hand, um, I was hiring people and promoting people into management positions without giving them the proper tools and supervision and context for them to be able to uh, to do their jobs well. Uh huh. So I think this is what happens in a lot of organizations, which is like, oh, you were really good at this one job, so I'm going to promote you to be a manager of the things. Yes. And um, so when the management comes more money. With management comes more money, but but without being explicit about the skills needed to be a manager versus like the doer of the thing, I think we saw some uh, some difficulty and challenges there. I think the other piece is um, a couple different things. I think you know I there were some folks that were not great hires that I think I held on to longer than I should have, and I did. And I sort of held on to them because it was just sort of easier to, like, hope. So have them do the work as opposed to get lean again. Exactly. Well, and also just, like, I, I kept coming back to this idea of, like, hope is not a strategy. Like, I just kept hoping that they would get better. Um, and, and, you know, they didn't necessarily on their own. And then the other piece is I was spending a lot more time outside of the organization fundraising because as the budget grew, the need for raising money grew. And... I kind of expected that things would kind of take care of themselves, and it, it didn't. Um, so, yeah, so I think that really contributed to, so if I can recap, it would be um, not providing enough training and context for folks to move into management roles. It was not being explicit about the culture and the expectations. It was holding on to people too long who were not suited to their jobs. And it was not, frankly, paying enough attention to the internal mechanisms of the organization because I was so externally focused. Okay, so one of the themes of this show, and I know I've only had five episodes, but uh, is like a lot of startup founders they love to bring in an organization from one to like seven or ten people, uh-huh. but then they hate having a deal with it after that. Now, do you think you're better at that growth phase as opposed to the mature, you know, general giant company? Yes, yes, 100%. Actually, it's so funny you mention it because I, I just wrote a blog piece on this, yeah. which is... You know, I think the skills and temperament that are um, that are really conducive to startups are not necessarily the skills that you need in order to grow and sustain a company. And so I liken it to I, I'm really good at building a train and figuring out a blueprint. I'm not that good, and frankly, I'm not that interested in making sure that train runs on time. And what's interesting is in a lot of cases, not just a nonprofit, but also across the board, you, you run into founder syndrome, where the skills and assets of the founder end up being a liability because you know what, what got them there will not necessarily get them to the next level. And so 
you know, for me, I realized that it was time for me to go for a bunch of different reasons. A, the fact that I'd been there for 12 and a half years. B, that I think what the organization needed was not necessarily something I was good at or particularly wanted to do. And C, I just kept getting sidetracked by all these like shiny new ideas. It was really because in my heart, I'm a, I'm a startup entrepreneur and I kept kind of throwing out these projects because I was bored but frankly, it didn't serve the organization because the organization needed to stick to its lane and you know, do what it did best. The real key is for startup funders to get honest with themselves about what it is they're good at and what they enjoy doing and then have the humility and the self-awareness to pass on the torch if they want their company or their organization to live beyond them. Okay, so how did you know it was time to leave? <laughs> So a lot of what I talked about, it, it was um, realizing that I had sort of lost that loving feeling. I mean, in the early days of scale, like I said, it was really hard, but it was really exciting. And then, you know, as we got bigger and we, you know, the funding sort of became more predictable and the staff stabilized and so on, I found that I just wasn't as, I just wasn't as excited to go to work as I used to be. I wasn't, I wasn't jumping out of bed and, uh, percolating with a million ideas and I um, and I just realized that you know I, I wasn't I wasn't really utilizing all of the skills and interests and passions that I had for growing and so I you know I told the board uh, six months in advance of leaving that I I was tendering my resignation and we launched a search with the search firm we have we found a really fantastic new leader and I was able to step away last year feeling really good about what I had built and feeling like it was in good hands. And so now I'm in the process of building a new, a new company. So I would call that an honorable discharge. It was an honorable discharge. You know, sometimes I actually just wrote a blog piece about it, which is, uh, I've titled it, A Lady Always Knows When to Leave a Party. <laughs> I love it. And so this lady knew it was time to go and it was, it was a good run. I had a lot of a lot of fun, had some great dance partners, and it was time to exit gracefully. So, what do you see on the horizon for your future? Uh, if, I, if I knew that, I would be... Um, well, a couple of different things. I'm um, right now working on my own consulting firm for nonprofits. I have a podcast, I have a blog, um, and I'm actually working on writing a book. So. Uh, yeah, we'll see what the future holds, but I, I, I'm really enjoying being in the wild and exploring lots of new fun projects and having really interesting conversations with people who are doing really interesting things, and we'll see what happens next. All right. Go check out Ria's podcast. RiaWong.com. What's the name of the podcast? Oh, the podcast is called Nonprofit Lowdown, available on all of the different sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. So go check out Nonprofit Lowdown, Ria's podcast, where she's uh, talking to people that are interesting and that um, a, lot, a lot of interesting conversations. And uh, I look forward to having you on here when you're like the CEO of UNICEF or, or the next UNICEF because you don't actually want to be the CEO. I don't actually want to be the CEO. But I think the, whoever I want, is. I want to see what your next thing is. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, yeah. No, I'm happy to be on. Thank you for having me. All right, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.